Welcome to our podcast, Who Isn't Fucking Crazy? He's Doug Engelman, visiting assistant professor in sociology at UNCW. And she is Stacy Colomer, director of the School of Social Work at UNCW. And we are here to answer the question, Who isn't fucking crazy? so excited today to have Bree Carr, who's a proud Seahawk MSW graduate yes, from yes, the yes. School of Social Work in 2017. She was also previously the president of on-campus NAMI, and she is now in private practice. And we are excited to interview you and hear all about your interests um, around mental illness and mental health, um, as well as your experiences when you were a student with NAMI, mm-hmm. um, and what you think could be happening to better help people now. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to ask you the first question. Can you share a little bit about yourself, your profession, why you got interested in this field? Yes. So, of course, as you stated, my name is Bree, um, and I started off in the social work field by coming to UNCW. And so I was introduced to the field by a professor when I was in Appalachian State in uh, my bachelor's degree um, pursuing psychology and they recommended or gave me really good insight of just different opportunities out there outside of just psychology because I was looking for something just a little bit different outside of kind of you know research. So that's how I got into applying for the MSW program and then getting accepted to UNCW. Um, So now I am a fully licensed LCSW and I own my own practice and I really enjoy being in the mental health field. There are so many things that I learn and I get to grow each and every day. And it's just such an intriguing you know, field to be a part of because of just the different things that just occur in the world. And so I'm always growing and learning, not just you know, from the knowledge that I already have, but also because the world is always growing. The world is always you know, advancing. The world is always changing. Um, so there's something that I can always adjust to um, and learn just by just being in the field. So um, a lot of my interest came just with wanting to do a lot of clinical work and also kind of that advocacy part as well. Um, so that's how I began, just just briefly, um, and I, I'm striving to continue remaining in the field from here forward. So that's the goal. That's the goal. So we are trying to uh, here at USDW. One of the purposes of this podcast is to get the word out about mental health, mental illness, mental disorder, frequency, and uh, especially in uh, younger age groups. Uh, so we focus on. Uh, the college campus mm-hmm. and uh, as we pre-talked we're both uh, engaged in NAMI on campus you were formally I'm currently mm-hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about uh, your experience with NAMI on campus and also how that related to NAMI Wilmington and what do you think the benefits of that connection are sure um, so I started off um, 
at NAMI on campus with just a few other peers. Um, so of course I was a graduate student at the time and there were a few undergraduates that were really invested in wanting to kind of destigmatize mental health on campus. And so we did a lot of work surrounding, you know, educating our fellow peers, being open, having open forums, um, talking about what it means to, you know, experience mental health, what mental health is, and being more open about, you know, all of our experiences. I think sometimes on campus we get to college and then we think, you know, we're off on our own, we're going to live our best life, and then we hit with school and our own mental health and having to go to work and having to balance all these things without necessarily having the proper resources and support to help us navigate through some of these kind of tough areas in life. Um, so NAMI on campus was a way to shed a light on that. And then we branched out and reached out to NAMI Wilmington and we kind of partnered together to raise awareness, not only on campus, but also in Wilmington as well. Um, so we would go to their meetings, we would you know, do different events together. We would do the NAMI walk, out of the darkness, just being very open about what the experiences were just as human beings, right? Um, sometimes I think that it can be hard trying to differentiate, you know, being, you know, an individual and then being a student, because um, sometimes you don't want to be placed with these labels of, well, you have depression or you have anxiety. Um, so I think our goal during that time was to normalize and to validate some of their experiences and to be more open about what they were actually experiencing. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, you may be interested in knowing that NAMI uh, Wilmington has its annual or its monthly meetings here on campus now. Oh. And we're in next month, in September, starting a youth group here on campus. Uh, wow. Be meeting monthly and then maybe biweekly. So we're making steps in that in that direction to bring Naomi Wilmington into the fold here. Mm -hmm. so, that's amazing. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. So this is one of those moments when we kind of go off script. So do you have any ideas? How, how did you recruit students to be interested in NAMI when you were president? Um, and what is the draw? How do, how do people find out to be involved? What is it? Oh, that's a good question. Very off script. Um, <laughs> so what we did oftentimes was word of mouth. Um, so we would go to different, so in my program, I had, you know, different, uh, classes so that I would tell my peers about it and so being that I was at the graduate level I would kind of bring in you know at the graduate level and then my peers would bring in at the um, undergrad level and so a lot of word of mouth a lot of flyers we did like uh, social media posts I think we had like a Facebook I believe at the time or it was an Instagram um, and posting around campus maybe even doing some events that you know that would maybe be enticing like hey we have pizza or hey we have different you know things happening or bring a friend and you know um so it just be little things to kind of draw people in um because we we did also realize that after you're done with classes you want to go back to your dorm room you want to go home you're not trying to do anything and so we were trying to kind of create an environment where even after class you would just feel welcome to just come in and just relax even though we were still kind of talking about mental health and you know doing other things wonderful well tell us about being a social worker and and what you've been doing since you graduated 
Ooh, this is a great question. Um, well, since graduation, <coughs> I have had various um, opportunities to work in the mental health field. Um, so I work in an agency. I've also done private practice work and now owning my own private practice. Um, I've done a lot with clinical work as well as professional development, um, as well as advocacy too. Um, so striving to branch out in all of those areas, but for the most part, I do do a lot of clinical work. Um, so my schedule sometimes is always just a little bit crazy um, because I'm striving to manage uh, all of these things that I really do love to do. Um, but I really do think that I have grown kind of in all of these areas of expertise and still striving to grow. And who do you see? Who are your clients? Um, right now, I see teens and up, so teens, young adults, um, older populations, middle-aged. I'm also a trauma specialist, so I do a lot of EMDR work as well. Um, so I strive to, you know, stay within that range. Um, previously, I used to do a lot of work with younger children and, you know, uh, maybe even preteens, but now striving just teens and forward is my primary population. In that, do you find yourself interacting with the family members, particularly parents of any of your clients, because that's a, an area we like to focus on, uh, trying to get the families more engaged in understanding what their, uh, their kids are going through and what kinds of therapy they're experiencing and, mm -hmm. and other dimensions of uh, what you're working on with, with, with your population. How often do you interact with family members and what, what is that like? Wow, um, great question. I interact with family members often, often. Um, I think sometimes it can be rewarding when we're all on the same page. Um, I think one of the challenges that I have to endure oftentimes is striving to be the advocate for the client and then also striving to be the voice of reason for the client and the parents. Because I think sometimes there is miscommunication of also what is happening. Um, because I work with children and in, in teens sometimes, um, parents can sometimes not believe their children when they say, you know, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling really, you know, depressed. Oh, you're not depressed, you're just, go clean your room, right? Sometimes it's very upsetting, and so having to kind of speak the language of the t child to the adult can, can oftentimes be a little difficult, um, but I think with the parents who are on board, it is very helpful, um, but sometimes when the parents are not on board, it can be very challenging. Um, so striving to kind of be patient is maybe number one, and have being open to these experiences and their experiences, and also noting where they are coming from. Um, sometimes parents also have their own trauma and things that they haven't necessarily identified and worked through, or have worked through, and so, thinking about their children, they're just like, that's on them, that's the kid, it ain't got nothing to do with me. Um, so striving to get the parents to kind of have a more of an open mind of what the child is actually experiencing or having an open mind of what mental health actually is can also be helpful because I do understand that we're coming from two different you know, time zones and two different decades, right? Mental health now is more open, we talk about it more, we're more, you know, it's more accessible. Sometimes in previous generations, it hasn't been. Um, so noting that as well. 
What resources have been useful to help these families? Um, a lot of psychoeducation, a lot of normalizing and validating these experiences, and even speaking from um, information that I have gathered from other families can be helpful. Um, I think when parents know that that they're not the only ones that are experiencing this or that their children aren't the only ones that are going through this, then just like, okay, so we aren't the outlier. This isn't kind of alien behavior. This is, okay, this is something that's quite normal. Um, that is truly kind of my best advocate because it helps them to know that it's more than just them kind of experiencing kind of this one thing. It's more so out, outside of that in terms of noting that all people are experiencing some of this. And so that's a resource that I often use, just psychoeducation of how often this happens within you know, family systems and with children. Um, and then also engaging them in just social things outside of kind of the realm of clinical treatment too. And what are some challenges along with that that families have accessing medical, social, educational, and other support services? Um, it can be very challenging. And I think it's very dependent on where they are in society and in terms of their socioeconomic status. I think when I was working more so in agency work, it was quite difficult striving to kind of get some of these resources because you had to look for, you know, different things that were maybe more so free or more so accessible that they didn't have to go out of their will and way to get their child in it. Because um, there were other things that they had to manage outside of just kind of the mental health realm for their kid. Um, so striving to balance that was a little bit challenging in agency work and now kind of comparing that to private practice is a little bit different because the resources are plentiful, right? We have more access, we have more resources, we have more support and there is a difference and so now I don't think that I see more so of a, of a struggle like I did in agency work um, but it can be a challenge when they don't necessarily know about the resources. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say the challenges are. I wanted to get back a little bit to talking about NAMI. Um, mm -hmm. Being on the board, I'm very aware that we have a real identity problem in, in this community. Um, and I think it just relates back to what parents might be, what kind of resources they might be accessing or be aware of. Um, how do you think, what do you think NAMI could do now to help promote resources or the information they have, the support groups and so on, to all different communities in within Wilmington? Mm. I know it's a big question. That is a big one. Um, I think when it comes to different communities and noting kind of how to extend the offer, um, coming in with a gentle touch and kind of being very knowledgeable about what communities we're wanting to kind of reach. Because I think we cannot approach the same communities the exact same way. Um, so really going in, being sensitive to kind of their experiences, because I think people are more receptive to receiving kind of resources, support, when necessarily they don't feel kind of on edge or charged. So kind of building those relationships with the community first um, and getting the name out there, I think can be super helpful. And then creating ties so that we can kind of branch out into kind of placing out some of these resources, creating some of these connections um, to build upon that. I think it can be difficult um, having, you know, 
different sectors and on campus and you know NAMI when there isn't kind of it's not necessarily broad right now um, so I think really creating that rapport with the community can can happen first just by you know being very engaged with the community going to different things I'm not sure necessarily what those things might be mm-hmm. but just going to different events you know kind of outreaching um, so that they know kind of what's out there and coming in from a place to where it's not necessarily kind of on edge, you know, uh, not kind of shoving it down their throat. Right. Here, take this flyer, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, more so saying, you know, these are just what we have. And then kind of building those kind of community relationships, Being I think. more are, inviting. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's very important. Okay, thank you. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think could be done to make it easier for people with a diagnosis to feel fully included within a community with that idea that every community is different and the approach has to be different. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think to be more inviting for persons with diagnoses, um, a gentle touch and also kind of noting maybe what their experiences are. Um, not necessarily saying that you have to have the same diagnosis or you have to, you know, sit with them for 55 hours to truly know their story but truly tuning in to them when they maybe do show up and maybe showing up for them um because again i don't think no anyone's going to share anything with you if they don't feel comfortable with you um and so you we may not necessarily know what their diagnosis is to begin with um but getting to know who they are as people getting to know who they are um, as the individual, because they're more than the diagnosis, right? They're more than just the label. And once you are able to reach them on that individual level, then you'll be able to more, more so open up about their diagnosis, what their experience is, and then create a bigger community with inviting other people that also may feel the exact same way. Um, so starting very small scale and getting to necessarily know them, and then kind of branching off from there. Let's shift to uh, public portrayal of mental health, mental health challenges. What would you like to see in the way people with mental illness are portrayed in the media? That's a great question. I definitely believe that uh, the public or in the media of how mental health is portrayed is more than the straight jackets and schizophrenia and the hallucinations and delusions. I am hoping that at some point we get to a place where we normalize what mental health actually is, right? I think some sometimes we can label mental health as just being, you know, locked up in, you know, quote unquote, the psych ward and kind of being treated with medication. That's not what it is, right? That's the severity of what it can be in, in terms of different, you know, diagnoses, but it's not fully what it is. Um, so having more education about what mental health is we know what physical health is you don't have to necessarily you know be locked up in the hospital to know everybody has physical health right um so noting that exact same thing for mental health everyone has mental health noting kind of what it is what it looks like you know even the severity of it the the lack thereof having more of an understanding of all sides of mental health we're not just categorizing it as one big thing that one population um, suffers from quote unquote and and for the people that are suffering with it you have to suffer in silence um, so being more open normalizing validating what it is to actually have mental health 
Great answer. I'd like to focus a little bit more on that term normalizing because that's one that I use a lot in my classes, trying to normalize this. Is that possible in your view, to normalize mental health problems given the fact that we have probably well over 40, 50% of individuals dealing with mental health challenges? So it should be normalized, but can we get that? Can we convey that message effectively to the public? I think we can, and it will take time. I think up to this point, we have reached uh, a realm of where we have began having more of those conversations of, of what it is and what it can look like and normalizing it to an extent. Um, and I also think we have some work to go. And so, yes, I think we can get there as well as I do think that it will take time. Um, just with having more of those conversations and giving more education of what it actually is. I think we're still at a place of where, you know, it still has that stigma, right? Oh, you have mental health, <laughs> you have cooties, right? I mean, it's like, get away from me. Um, so it's striving to have more of the understanding. And again, I think that comes with time. I think that comes with patience. And I also think that comes with education. What policies do you think should be put in place? This is gonna bring you back to your advocacy and your policy <laughs> welfare class. But what, what do elected officials need to know about mental illness and, and what could we as a society be doing better? Um, another good question. So I think that there can be a lot of policies, and I don't wanna say quote unquote a lot, but I think there can be policy in place in different systems, right? So in our education system, kind of in the workplace, of course, at you know the government you know level of being more um, educated and more interested in kind of how mental health affects kind of our sense of being, right? At all levels. And so I think even in the education system, not waiting till children get off to college, to then want to talk about mental health, right? We want to then teach them about mo emotion regulation and all of these other, you know, key terms. However, for the first, you know, 12 years in school, they're being labeled as, you know, oppositional defiant or they're being labeled as, you know, the bad kid who doesn't come from much, but he's going to walk around with a teacher and has a behavior plan in place, right? So getting to know some of this language before, kind of in our education systems, getting to know what this looks like in kind of our political systems and how we, you know, branch out into how this affects our jobs, how this affects our branches of government, how this affects, you know, different systems of people, right? Different systems within the workplace, different systems within government, different systems within kind of just everywhere. Um, being more knowledgeable about what it looks like and how it presents in each capacity, not just, you know, once again, in that subset of group of people with the straitjackets on. Just having more knowledge so that we can create policy to kind of protect and prevent from um, it going maybe awry because we had the lack of understanding. I want, I want to go down um, the road of talking about race. Okay. Yeah. And, and you are a woman of color. I am. I, I would say, as a social worker, our profession uh, needs to do some work. We, we are one of the first professions that will jump up and say, yes, we need to do more work. Hello. But we, we are really lacking when it comes to representation of mental health providers who are people of color. Mm -hmm. So, um, in fact, I think social work is over 80% white women. Mm -hmm. So, 
just in your own view, I don't mean for you to represent everyone, but Bree, what could we be doing better? Mm, that is a great question. Um, because I do recognize the lack thereof of representation. Um, I think I also experienced it on my own level with, you know, being kind of an African-American clinician and then only having a small group of clinicians that I also can turn to that share some of the very similar or same experiences. Um, and so I think branching out to have more conversations about it is, of course, number one. Um, I like to be seen. I like for my experience to be seen. And so sometimes when it comes to kind of addressing some of these things, even though, you know, as social workers, we're right on it. We're the justice warriors, right? Um, but I think to not only say that we're working on it, having those conversations about it, and then also doing something about it. Um, I think sometimes we can get lost in the jargon of, you know, we're gonna be the social justice warriors, we're gonna do all these things, but then when it comes down to it, we're standing alone, right? So standing with us, not just in your words, but also in, a, in action, right? When some of these things happen, some things happen in our system, in society, kind of standing with us, being kind of vocal with us. And that nece doesn't necessarily mean, you know, burning the place down, but, you know, being kind of here to see our experiences and give us those platforms to speak about it and um, allowing us to share our experiences also kind of giving us what your feedback is too. What kind of, what are some barriers that stop, you know, us from moving forward? Or what are some challenges that get in the way from branching out, right? Um, and I think sometimes it can be hard as a person of color to navigate it because sometimes it does feel like you're doing it alone and sometimes it does get very overwhelming and so you're just like you know what Pff, i'll just go to my own people and we're just we'll just kind of do what we need to do on that level but i think again it comes with understanding kind of the the disconnect and then also striving to connect it ask questions follow through on action follow through on action make sure people are seen mm -hmm. Now, I can only imagine that you have a killer wait list. <laughs> do you? <laughs> I do, actually. I do. I do. A little few months out, but, you know, we do what we have to do. <clears throat> well, I'd like to cycle, circle, excuse me, back to a brief discussion about NAMI uh, and race, because uh, very recently we here at NAMI Wilmington have gone through a uh, are going through a reorganization and we're hiring uh, the current president as our executive director and we're going to be looking for a person to work under him mm -hmm. and so we sought advice from NAMI uh, North Carolina and one of the major pieces of advice we sought we received was you should hire a person of color because NAMI is uh, perceived as being overwhelmingly white Ooh. and that was a white man from Wake County, uh, Nami Wake, and mm -hmm. he said this is endemic in the system in North Carolina. So I just wanted to see if you have any re response to that or any reaction to that. Oh, that is um, a good observation that he had and also a good recommendation. Um, I think that that is a very challenging question, um, solely because there is a difference kind of within communities of how we maneuver through mental health 
Um, and in that same token, I do think that it could be helpful to have, you know, a person of color kind of within the, the, the chapter, within the organization. Um, but I think that it comes with its own barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, I just, I know I'm speaking for me, I I think sometimes it's hard to be the spokesperson for my people, right? Because I know that my experience is very particular and I don't want to necessarily put words in the mouths of, of my fellow um, community. So I think, I think that can be helpful and I also think that can be sometimes overwhelming to be that one person, to be the spokesperson for a community. Um, and I think it's also important so that the community can see that we are kind of reaching new heights and new depths. So I think it's, it's kind of a multifaceted kind of challenge of understanding what comes in kind of what comes in with that. Um, noting, you know, what it means to have a person of color. Are we going to be the only one? Right? Are we going to be the only one represented? Right? Are we going to be the spokesperson? Kind of reminds me of those college days when you're the only, quote unquote, excuse me, I was the only black person in my some of my classes, and so we're talking about race, and they're just like three, and I'm just like, oh no, oh oh, we're doing this today? Okay, well fine. Um, sometimes that that comes with a lot of pressure just on the individual. So understanding kind of what challenges come with that but also providing some of those experiences too. So I think it takes work of getting there and maintaining that, but with, again, with open conversation, with being, allowing um, us to see kind of the community for what it is, can help with kind of bringing in more, right? Um, Because I like to see kind of people that look like me, right? That's very enticing for me. You know, no disrespect to anyone, right? But I just love to see my community, you know, kind of in new spaces, in new places, and having that opportunity to kind of be like, wait, they're doing that too? Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'll join, right? But again, it just comes with its own challenges. I was thinking about this when you mentioned NAMI reaching out more to the community, and I was thinking about this idea. Um, We Typically, we go out to local churches to do presentations. So, Mm -hmm. but I'm imagining Chuck or myself or some older white guy going into a, a black church and trying to promote the NAMI services could be real, real challenging. Uh, and I think NAMI needs to not only have hire one person, but recruit as many people as possible to get more of a representation of the overall community. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge challenge, but I think that's one of our uh, initiatives that we're going to under, undertake in the next year or so. So. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you about that in the future. Too. Oh yes, 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 yes. I'm all I'm welcoming to all conversation, and I think that could could be a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think, you know, I think the communities would be kind of receptive to it, as long as we're building those kind of true relationships, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of being there in terms of a a, a place of need and a place of help. Um, rather than, you know, anything else that would seem very kind of pseudo. Yeah. Yeah. You'd like to add? Um, or Bree, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, well, I will say I thank you guys for this opportunity. I do enjoy talking about mental health. I do enjoy talking about, you know, uh, racial equity. I do enjoy 
kind of being in this space. So I do thank you guys for the time for today. Um, this has been very um, welcoming and eye-opening too. So thank you for this experience. Oh, thank, well, you. thank you. Yes. You've been an awesome guest. Awesome. <laughs> thank yes. you. I appreciate it. She was wonderful. She was wonderful. She was that. And uh, well done bringing that the race issue up. I'm so glad you did that. Well, oh, my God, Doug. As we're talking about it, I feel like we have this whole other direction we need to head into, yeah. which is um, cultural differences in mental health. And, and I think with the two of us, like, we have this, you know, a very specific kind of white lens. But yeah. different cultures and ethnicities see mental health so differently. Um, and so how do you start where people are and also don't, you know, get them too far down a road that they might not be comfortable yet yeah. to accept? And then in other, you know, if someone's an immigrant, how it's treated in their country is completely different. We, and we saw that in one of our early interviews. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have a whole other area kind of to explore. Well, as a sociologist, there has been uh, a ton, literally a ton of research going back decades and how uh, communities of color, ethnic communities, treat mental illness very differently, um, much less accepting in some cases. Um, we can overcome this and in some cases we can deal with this. We don't need medical help. We don't need psychiatry. And uh, so that resistance has been consistent and I think Bree reflected that, that there is still that resistance and we really have to figure out a way to uh, work through that somehow. Well, and then again, um, making sure we have enough practitioners who yes. can serve different communities. Yeah. I mean, we, we are falling short. Um, and I was thinking when she was talking about things you need to start very early in grade school, like that's one of those things. Mm -hmm. Like we need to start talking about like here's different career paths for you when kids are very young. Um, so they can see themselves in those roles. So we're not like struggling here in the, in the college level. Like how do we get more representation within our majors? So, okay, to that point, I was listening to uh, NPR on the way in today, and there was a whole segment on how there's a movement within uh, school boards across the country to bring parental approval into curricula for... <laughs> grammar schools and that would be one of the things that would be object objected to by many many absolutely people parents who don't want their kids to hear about race and that's a big political issue right now so it's become oh that's uh, a bad idea partisan it's become highly politicized and um so we're, we're not just challenged to deal with the communication of mental health mental uh, illness issues, but also the broader race issue in our country. Uh, I'm, just, I'm really glad we had Brianne. She was a great guest. And she'll be teaching for social work next semester. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Thanks. Special thanks to our wonderful engineer, Michael Magnanti. Thank you to the Department of Sociology and Criminology and the School of Social Work for their incredible support. We love you guys. Thank you to all our listeners. And don't forget to check out our next episode. Bye now. Take care.